Joel's going to just introduce what I'm going to share. I'm going to just basically tell the narrative to relive what happened on that Friday morning. But Joel's going to introduce it through reading and a little brief meditation and actually then reading the text that I'll be speaking from. But, you know, Jesus, you are head of this church. And we honor your presence. It's been fantastic just to worship you the way we have. And Holy Spirit, we honor your presence as the one sent from the Father and, and the Son to indwell us. But I pray, Holy Spirit, open our eyes of understanding that we may see the crucified Christ in a way this morning as we've never seen him before. In Jesus' name. So before I get to reading, um, I'd like us really just to, even if you sit with your eyes closed when I start reading this little poem, but to be silent with Jesus. And then I'll go on to reading the text. And as we remember the suffering of the cross, it is good for us to hold in our awareness that we are collectively in a time of global suffering and sorrow. We think of Ukraine, we think of our own floods that have happened right now. So we invite you to begin this Easter Friday with an, a moment of silence, allowing your hearts to open in compassion for all those who are suffering through this turbulent time in our world in our very own lives. This is called Still. This day, let all stand still in silence, in sorrow. Sun and moon, be still. Earth, be still, still waters, still wind. Let the ground gape in stunned lamentation. Let it weep as it receives what it thinks it will not give up. Let it groan as it gathers the one who was thought forever stilled. Oh, time, be still. Watch and wait. Be still. Now I'm going to read from Matthew 27, from verse 27. You can follow if it helps you pay attention, otherwise I'll just read it slowly as we go through what, how Jesus experienced this morning. The governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Her hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him. They took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. 
And after they mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. And as they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means a place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall, but after tasting it, Jesus refused to drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, Ha, oh, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, well, save yourself. Come on down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others. Oh, but he can't save himself. He's king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and then we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults upon him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing by, they heard this and said, oh, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with the wine vinegar and put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. And the rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus, they saw the earthquake and all that had happened. They were terrified and explained, oh, surely he was the son of God. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. If you 
from an Anglican background, you'd say, may the Lord add his blessing to his word, hear the word of the Lord. Paul says to Timothy, in 1 Timothy 4, he says, give attention to the public reading of the scriptures, because he knew that the average Christian didn't read that much scripture. <laughs> so, uh, I trust just hearing the word of the Lord being read like that, it washes over you and creates a picture of what happened. So friends, what I want to do is exercise in what is called Hebrew narrative theology. So we're talking about history. Today is 2022. Jesus was crucified in 30 AD, just eight years from ahead of us. We're coming up to the 2,000-year mark. Jesus began his ministry in 26 AD. That's just four years ahead of us to the 2000th anniversary of Jesus beginning his ministry. So we're talking about history. And to see these events from history um, through what happened, through research, in terms of what actually happened, and the Jews uh, tell historical stories as accurately as they can through the eyewitnesses through the eyewitnesses who were present and caused the sound boom. That was interesting. God bless you. Uh, you're a person without senses. You react immediately. Wonderful. But in recounting historical facts by storytelling, they also theologize the stories as per God's purposes. And it's called narrative theology, which is being restored in modern academic theology. So it simply goes like this. Jesus, from his earliest consciousness, as he grew up in Nazareth with his father and his mother working in his dad's business, at some point reached an awareness within himself through his parents reading to him Torah and the prophets at nighttime and him being a shul on the Saturday, the synagogue school, learning Torah, that he somehow was the one of whom the prophets spoke, the Savior of Israel. And for me, it never ceases to just amaze me. At some age, early in boyhood, Jesus decided to believe what his spirit, what the Holy Spirit in him said through the scriptures, that in fact, he was the one who was born to save Israel. And he decided to believe it. And at the age of 12, Luke lifts the veil on his 30 years of hiddenness in Nazareth, where he tells his mom and dad, he said, don't you know I must be about my father's business? Which reveals one year before bar mitzvah, which happens at 13 years old, at 12 years old, he already had the consciousness that he was the one to do the Father's business. And Jesus, when he began his ministry later, at 30 years old in Hebrew Jewish society, the priests only were allowed to enter the ministry of ministering before God in the temple at the age of 30. So Jesus waited until he was 30 years old, then went to John the baptizer in the 
wilderness down near the river Jordan, joined his learning school for a while, his discipleship school, and then was baptized, asked to be baptized by John and began his ministry. But the significant point here is that according to John's gospel, John the baptizer, when he saw Jesus, who he was actually Jesus' older cousin because Mary and Elizabeth were related. Um, he said, look, everyone, look, all his People came from all over Israel to John the Baptizer because he was preaching an entire message of the coming of the kingdom and the coming of Mashiach, Israel's Messiah King. And, and when he saw Jesus coming through the crowd, he said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the people would have been like amazed at that proclamation of John. This idea of the Lamb of God in the Jewish mind is so prominent because of Pesach, Passover. And the Exodus. The Exodus event in the Jewish mind, even today in modern rabbinical Judaism, the Exodus event in terms of the entire Old Testament scriptures is like the Mount Everest that defines Israel. Because after 400 years of oppression under the Pharaohs, God dramatically, miraculously, through raising up Moses, and then the ten miracles of defeating all the Egyptian gods, the, the spiritual powers, the, the ten primary gods, each plague defeated an Egyptian god. It was spiritual warfare. And then the sacrifice of, a, of the lambs in all the Jewish homes and the, the, that exodus them out from under the oppression of the pharaohs into a journey to become the people of God. And when they went through the Dead Sea, uh, the, the, the Red Sea that opened up parted ways and then uh, came to Mount Sinai. God entered into a love covenant with Israel and said, Now I came as warrior king to Egypt to deliver you and save you. But now I'm becoming your, 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 your king to reside among you in a tabernacle. And Jesus, at least God through Moses, uh, created the tabernacle and God dwelt in Israel. So just to say the Passover, probably more than uh, Shavuot, which is Pentecost, and more than Sukkot, which is Tabernacles. Three of the major six feasts in Israel every year, all the, or at least the men, all the men had to go up from wherever they were in Israel to Jerusalem to worship the Lord at Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. But of the three, probably Passover was the the Mount Everest in the Jewish mind that defined it. So when John the Baptist said, look at the Lamb of God, he takes away the sins of all. He's, that's the Passover Lamb. Yeah. He has been predestined to come and to save us. And so that defined his life. And Jesus planned his whole ministry to go in to Jerusalem on the Passover. And he went to Jerusalem every Passover, every year. But after three years of ministry, he planned and was determined to go believing he would die. And from a human point of view, not from the divine, the divinity of Jesus inside of him, but from the humanity of Jesus. And we have a problem in Western Christianity from the Reformed Reformation and Reformed theology that has divinized Jesus where we just see Jesus as the divine Son of God doing a transaction exchange on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. That through the blood, we're forgiven through the blood we're healed and it's a transaction God is not a transactional God God is a personal God far far more than just a transaction far 
far more. So Jesus knew as a human being, we need to undo this idea of seeing Jesus as the divine Christ and recover seeing him as a human being, living his life by faith in Yahweh, just like you and me live our lives by faith in God, having been steeped in the Hebrew Scriptures, coming to certain self-understanding as the Son of Man, believing to be also the Son of God, and lived his life by faith and conviction in the power of the Holy Spirit, just like you live your life by faith under the power of the Holy Spirit. As opposed to this crossover that he did miracles because he was God and he did this because he was God. No, he did everything as a human being by faith in God. I personally believe from my understanding of the scriptures, Jesus did not have any kind of divine guarantee that he would rise again from the dead. Jesus died in faith in obedience to the Father's plan, trusting and hoping that God the Father would vindicate him through resurrection. He knew the Hebrew scriptures and that taught the resurrection of the dead. And he believed that it spoke of him as the first of the resurrection. But it all happened by faith, not by divine guarantee. And we need to understand that because then we... We humanize Jesus in the sense that we can relate to him and identify with him in his suffering and death as a human being and what he went through. So then, friends, he goes up to Jerusalem on that last week of, of his life, the Passover, and he comes into Jerusalem on last Sunday, which was Palm Sunday. And uh, historians, the biblical uh, scholars say that um, high probability... Pontius Pilatus, the Roman governor, came from Caesarea, which was the Roman stronghold on, on the coast, just north of Tel Aviv, below Haifa, and he would come into Jerusalem for all the feasts just to keep control with the soldiers that there was no Jewish rebellion. And probably while Jesus came over the Mount of Olives, wept over Jerusalem, and said, if only you had known what would make for peace, I come as the king of peace. But it's hidden from your eyes, and you will, ref you will refuse and reject me. And then to symbolize that, he came riding on a donkey. Whereas Pilatus would have come riding on a white horse from the other side of Jerusalem. And the likelihood at the same time on the Sunday morning, just a week ago, the two came riding into Jerusalem for the last week. The one on a horse as a conqueror. A military conqueror which the Romans occupied Palestine from 63 BC and really inflicted a brutal oppressive rule over the Jewish people and uh, Jesus came riding from the other side of Jerusalem through the Golden Gate which is prophesied that the Messiah will come in through the Golden Gate on a donkey <laughs> And they all lay down their garments and palm branches, which is Palm Sunday, which is basically saying, I come and my, my way is, is not the way of, of being a military conqueror by using violence to defeat evil, but my way is the way of peace by absorbing all human violence into my body. And even the worst of the violence of the spiritual powers behind the brutal Roman regime, I will absorb into my body and thereby snuff it out. The way of love is the way of suffering love, whereby Jesus suffers the brokenness of people and takes it into his own body. 
and thereby defeats evil. The way of love versus the way of, of, of presidents and military rulers and Vladimir Putin. <laughs> and then what happens is Jesus as the Lamb of God is interrogated. So one week before the Passover, they take the, all the, the lambs and the sheep that are prepared for slaughter on the Passover. And Jews came from all over the, the diaspora to Jerusalem. They said that the population, Josephus in his book, the Jewish historian said that the population of Jerusalem swelled up to, to, up to a million Jews that came from all over the diaspora in the Passover meal. So they had lots of sheep to examine. For one whole week, the priests would examine every sheep and lamb that would be slaughtered so it would be unblemished. So from the Palm Sunday, last Sunday, when Jesus rode in, for a whole week, he was interrogated by the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the chief priests, the scribes, all the established authorities. You read the text from when he came into Jerusalem until the Passover meal on the Thursday evening. He was interrogated. Basically, the gospel writers are saying, they examined Jesus and they found no blemish in him. And he was the unblemished, pure Paschal Lamb of God, ready to die for the sins of the world. He who knew no sin and did no wrong, therefore had the moral and spiritual authority to take upon himself our wrongdoing and pay our price in our place, dying our death. So that we need not die. And then he planned that week to come to the Passover meal with his, with his apostles. And you must understand that they, although Jesus had warned them in the, in the gospel narratives four times, there are specific predictions that he would die. Jesus tried to explain to his apostles. But they, they didn't get it. They were a bicky, duh. Uh, you know, they, they, they kept vying for position and power whenever he spoke about the kingdom and going up to Jerusalem for the last time. But they thought he was going up to become king and to basically overthrow the Romans and, and establish the kingdom. But not true. Jesus was the completely paradoxical king that did, that did it the other way around. The dark vocation of Jesus that he understood and embraced as Israel's king, Israel's Messiah, was from the suffering servant passages of Isaiah. Yeah. And Jesus really believed a, a minority stream of prophetic Hebrew texts that when God comes as king, he will come and suffer for the sins of the people. And that was a small stream compared to all the other prophecies that God will come and basically beat up his enemies and establish the kingdom and rule with shalom. But the way he would do it was through suffering love, not through military conquest. When Jesus returns, and hopefully soon, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, he will then come as a political military king to defeat evil in all its forms, physical and spiritual, and establish his kingdom over the earth. And then everyone will have shalom. But in his first coming, 
He believed that he would be the Passover lamb and that he would die at the Passover feast. He believed that according to the scriptures and he knew in his heart by the Holy Spirit and intuition that Judas would betray him. So he set up that last meal, the Passover meal on the Thursday night. So it's Sunday morning, just think back Thursday. It's not Sunday morning, it's Friday morning. Yeah. I'm preaching at, at uh, I'm getting confused, at harvest on Sunday morning. That's resurrection morning. We're remembering the crucifixion. So last night, Thursday night, almost, almost, just short of eight years, 2,000 years ago, it literally happened. Jesus sent the disciples ahead of him to prepare the upper room, and uh, he they go in there after the sun sets to have the Passover meal. And for Jesus, it's his last meal with his disciples. And the stunning thing, and we're going to break bread. I'm just, going to, I'm just painting the background, then I'll do the story of what happened. But here, we're going to be breaking bread when we finish all together to remember the death of our Lord Jesus. But the stunning thing was that in the middle of the meal... I mean, besides stunning his disciples by getting up to wash their feet, because they had forgotten to get a servant to do the common courtesy of welcome by doing the washing of the feet. And this, expect, this prophet of Israel, hopeful Messiah, humiliates himself by acting like a slave and going around and washing their feet. That was a stunning act. And they were all completely silent. But then worse, worse than that is that when he then comes to break the bread in the middle of the Passover meal, they take the matzo and they take the, the wine and he prays the Hebrew blessing. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Hamotzi Lechem Haaretz who gives us the grain of the earth, the bread of life. And then he breaks it. And then he doesn't say, take and eat this, and let's remember what, what God has done for us in the Passover. He actually says, this is my body, which is broken and given for you. Take and eat my body. Now you must know for the Jewish mind, it blew all their fuses. That is cannibalism. That is the most unkosher you can ever get. <laughs> this is my body. In other words, in Jewish thinking, he's saying, I am the Passover lamb that is sacrificed. Eat my flesh. Eat my flesh. And you will exodus out from under the condemnation of your sin and the rule of Satan and all his demons, and you will enter the kingdom of God. Beautiful. Then he takes... <laughs> the juice, and basically he prays the Hebrew blessing. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Blessed be the Lord God, King of the universe, who gives us the fruit of the vine. And then he says the most dramatic statement. He said, take all of you and drink of this, because this is my blood. That's even more unkosher than the first unkosher. In, the, in Torah, it says you never drink the blood of any animal, let alone the, 
the, the most evil thought from hell is to drink the blood of another human being. It's like if the first one blew their fuses, then their brain went, Bwah! drink my blood. Because this blood is the blood of the Lamb that makes a new covenant between God and you as the people of God. And cleanses you from all your sins and gives you eternal life. So you must know the Passover was like completely filled with drama and like revolutionary statements. And then after that, this is from the Jewish mind point of view. Then he said, let's go out. And of course, the Jewish, the, what is called the Egyptian Hallel, which is Psalm 113 to Psalm 118, are the psalms that are sung during the Passover meal. I don't know if you guys are aware of it. In the book of Psalms, at the Feast of Tabernacles, as, it, as an example, Psalm 145 and other psalms are, are sung. At the Feast of Shavuot, which is Pentecost, other psalms are sung, the Feast of the Harvest. But Jesus was singing and quoting the psalms of Hallel. 113 to 118. When he came riding in on a donkey, remember what the crowd said. Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That is a quote from Psalm 118. The people knew it. You see, the Jews in those days, the devout Jews, had learned the Psalms by heart. And they prayed them all by heart. So it's in their mind and it comes out their mouth. So you see behind the story, Jesus is praying the Psalms all the time as his human means of intimacy with God to receive the strength and the grace of the Holy Spirit to go through the intense suffering that he would go through. And this is the spirituality of Jesus that's hidden behind the text. So as they leave the upper room, they sing the Hallel and they go to the garden. It actually says that. And they're singing the psalms of the Hallel Psalms. And they go down from the upper, upper room down to the garden. And then he enters the garden. He takes three of his closest friends with him, Peter, James, and John. And he pleads with all of them, please, 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 please watch with me. Help me. Pray with me. I am so overcome. He says, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. That's a quote from Psalm 69. He's quoting the Psalms now. Every phrase that comes out of his mouth is from the Psalms. Because now is his moment of divine destiny to drink the cup of God's wrath for human sin. And now his deepest reservoirs of spiritual formation are called upon to go through with, with what's coming down. And in the garden, three times, he goes a bit further and he throws himself on the ground with his face and he says, Abba, Abba, if it is at all possible, take this cup away from me. I can't drink this. I can't go through with this. And yet inside, this is last night, probably 10, 11 o'clock at night. Inside, he rallies with the... The, the resources of the grace of the Holy Spirit through his spiritual formation and says, but Abba, nevertheless, not my will be done. Your will be done. If you want to, if you help me, I will go through with this. But I feel so heavy 
and overcome. I feel as if I'm going to die now. Have you ever felt that you've come to the edge of death out of sheer, complete overwhelming of emotion and darkness? And every time he went back to his disciples and pleaded with them, please help me. You're my closest friends. Pray with me. Help me. This is my moment of greatest trial. And Jesus' long obedience in the same direction, right from the beginning when he learned as a little three-year-old boy, when his father, Abba Yosef, earthly father, said, Yeshua, just hold this nail like this in the carpentry shop. I just want to hammer it in. And the three-year-old little Yeshua said, Abba, make sure you hit the nail, please. <laughs> but I'll obey you. Jesus learned a long obedience in the same direction. And every point, every day of his life, every week, he learned to yield his will to the Father's will through obeying his earthly father in apprenticeship in the carpentry business. And even at every point, it says Satan came to Jesus and tempted him again and again, not just for, in, the, in the 40 days of fasting in the wilderness, but Jesus through his spiritual formation of continually yielding his will to his Father's will, resisting evil and temptation and continually doing good, had built up the moral spiritual muscle to say yes to the Father when he needed it most. Dear friends, the biggest trials of our lives in spiritual terms comes towards the end of your life. You think growing old is easy. It's not. But the ultimate test of who you are and who you have become is sifted by the devil towards the end of your life. And then we see if we die well or we don't die well. And give glory to God through the form of our death. But let me not go into another sermon. <laughs> then Judas comes with the, with, the, with the soldiers and kisses Jesus, betrays him, and hands him over. And then we go through the night, last night. So look, the meal was a full-on Passover meal that went on two, three hours at least. And they feasted. And they ate. And then they went and prayed in the garden. I'm estimating probably 11 o'clock at night, maybe coming up to 12 o'clock. They came. In, in the garden, and they took Jesus. And uh, the trial then went on, first before Caiaphas and the high priests. Then here they went to Herod. Uh, then they went to Pontius Pilate. Then Herod wanted to see him. Then they went to Herod. Then they came back to Pontius Pilate. By that time, it's the early hours of the morning. And then we come to chapter, chapter 27, where in the morning, the crowd had gathered again as the sun was coming up outside the praetorium where the governor, the Roman governor, sat. And Pilate had done everything he could, and his wife warned him that she had a dream that night. This man's innocent. Leave him. So Pilate then gets a basin of water to symbolize in front of all the people. He washes his hands, and he says, I don't want to sentence this man. I hand him over to you. But then they, what does the crowd do? The same crowd in in, in historical probability that welcomed Jesus on the Sunday was there too. And they shouted, Crucify, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. The fickle crowd. You must never follow the mood of the crowd. It is fickle. 
When it serves you best, you go this way. When it serves you best, you go that way. But probably, in historical probability, many of the same people who welcomed him the week before were in the crowd, and now they're shouting, crucify him. So Pontius Pilatus, as an act of desperation, says, okay, my tradition is at the Passover feast, we always set a prisoner free, we give him amnesty, and he brought out Jesus, and he brought out Barabbas, and he, he presented the two before him. And Barabbas, in our English Bible, it's Barabbas. In Aramaic, uh, which was the common language that they spoke, which is a, a dialect of Hebrew, it's Bar Abbas. And Bar is son, and Abba is father. Here is the son of the father. And here is the son of the father. Yeshua Hanotsri, Jesus the Nazarene, who claims to be the Son of God. That was the Jewish charge of blasphemy that they pinned on Jesus to kill him. Is that he blasphemed by presuming to call himself the Son of God, Bar Abba. And here is Bar Abba, who is an insurrectionist, part of the zealots who wanted to overthrow the Romans by violence, the way of, of revolution. To kill the Romans and take and establish the Jewish kingdom by force and drive out the brutal oppressor. And he was a murderer, an insurrectionist, a, a revolutionary. And, they, and he said, who do you want? The son of the father or the real son of the father? You choose. And what did they shout? Give us this, give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas, the revolutionary. We embrace his model of kingship. We re and what must I do with Yeshua, Hanotsri, Jesus the Nazarene, who says he is Barabba, the son of God? Crucify him, crucify him. Okay, I'll give you. Barabbas, you're free to go. Take Jesus and flog him. And you know, they took him. And they took off his clothes and put his hands tied it to a post. And they flogged him the Roman way. And if you do the historical studies, it is absolutely brutal. Because the Romans had perfected the art of executing people through the most cruel, protracted, excruciating pain that was known to the world at that time called crucifixion. But it would always start with scourging with a cat of nine tails. So it was a, 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 a whip that had a handle with, with nine you know, leather thongs that had pieces of bone embedded in them. And then they would lash the person's back and then rip up the flesh as the pieces of bone would embed themselves in, in the flesh. And you know, they came, they'd perfected the art so that if they went more than 39, the likelihood is that the person would die. If they stopped short of 39, the likelihood is that they would sustain to be able to go the next step and be crucified. And the book of Isaiah in the, uh, the third Song of the Servant passage says, They plowed up my back like a field. So they scourged Jesus 39 times. His back was ripped open and raw and bleeding. His, his flesh was torn to ribbons, literally. Then when 
they had finished doing that. They put a crown of thorns on his head. And they put a, a robe on him and straight on his back. A robe. And they mocked him and said, they bowed before him and said, Hail! And they would have said this in the Aramaic. Hail Mashiach! Hail Messiah! Messiah is king of the Jews. Hail Messiah! And he was, paradoxically, the real Messiah. Not only the Messiah of the Jews, but the Messiah of the world. He would save the world from our sins. So then they lead him out, put the cross on him, take off the robe, put the cross on him. Now he's naked. Again, historians are in debate, but there is a lot of, there is historical record from Roman writings that people were crucified naked, stark naked, not just with a loincloth to cover their genitals. Some argue that he had a loincloth to cover the genitals. But the likelihood is he was led out maybe with a loincloth and maybe it was taken off when he was crucified. But the naked shame of Jesus hanging on the cross was for all to see. As they lead him out and Joel read the story, he stumbled and he fell and he struggled out of sheer physical weakness and exhaustion. And uh, there was a guy who came in from Cyrene, S Simon, and was looking in the crowd, and they called him, and they said, Hey, you come here and help this man carry the cross. <laughs> you know, dear friends, that in itself is a meditation. The people stand and watch, and if you called upon to participate in the drama and help Jesus, would you be willing? Would you be willing? Or would you say, no, no, not me. You know, Here am I, Lord, send Greg. <laughs> and you push Greg forward. <laughs> but they, 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 they got him and he carried the cross to Golgotha, which is a rocky outcrop of a hill that was also stark naked above Jerusalem, outside the gate. That would be on the northeastern side of the city historically. And there they crucified him. They put the cross down. They nailed him. And again, the likelihood was not that it would have a, a, a vertical one as up there, but a cross beam like that. The likelihood, historically. And they laid it down. Then they put him on it. And then they crucified him. And according to Luke, while they're hammering the spikes through his hands or his wrists, he, he was saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And uh, the, again, the likelihood, historical probability, is the spike went through the wrist. Because going through the hand, it easily pulls out. And when you're hanging on the cross, death by crucifixion is death by asphyxiation. In other words, when you're on the cross... You have to breathe, and your entire body weight is on the two nails and on the nails in your heels that goes to the bottom. And you're going to push yourself up to breathe and then take a little bit of rest as you breathe out slowly. And, push your, and Jesus died from loss of breath. He gave up his breath at the end. And so if he had been nailed there, the weight of his body in, the, in his movements to get some form of relief and breath into his lungs probably would have pulled out. Unless they had put the spikes through there and then they 
tied a rope around his wrists to the cross. But there is again debate and a lot of, there is evidence from archaeological that the nails went through the wrist because that does not pull out and that is even more excruciating, painful because all the nerves that come to the hand are concentrated in the wrist. So they crucify him. Then when they've crucified him, they lift up the cross with ropes like this and it slides into the hole. And there he hangs. And they crucified two thieves on either side of him. And then that's nine o'clock in the morning. It's quarter past ten now. We've just passed nine o'clock. So from nine o'clock to twelve o'clock, people come past and they cajole him. And the, the medieval paintings of Jesus hanging on the cross, they always have him hanging high up here somewhere. But once again, from archaeological evidence and according to the historical record, the probability is not that Jesus was lifted high up above the ground, but was above the ground sufficient that probably his feet were round about here and his head was round about here so that people could actually slap him, pull his beard, spit on him, cajole him, torment him, accuse him. It was designed for complete and utter public humiliation and shame. While you're struggling to breathe, while you're in deep body trauma because your back has been ripped up with 39 lashes and you're bleeding and bleeding, bleeding to death, struggling to breathe, to live. For three hours, the wrath of man, the wrath of humanity, the wrath of people is poured out on Jesus through all of these accusations. And Joel read them in the text. He said, if you are the Son of God, prove it to us and come down. Come on. The title above your head is Christos in Greek. It was written in Greek, Latin, and Aramaic. The King of the Jews. If you are the Messiah, Prove it to us and come down from the cross. You did so many miracles. You even raised your friend Lazarus back from death. Come on, prove it to us and come down from the cross. You must know what happened. Then there is evidence. So there are what is called the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. And if you look at them, I don't have time to go into them. I'm just giving you the overall story. Jesus then quotes Psalm 22. And if you read Psalm 22, it's all about the bulls of Bashan that come at me and the dogs that sneer at me. And the picture of David that David gives prophetically by the Holy Spirit when he writes Psalm 22 is a prediction of the coming son of David who would die for the sins of his people. And he describes the, both the, the physical warfare and the spiritual warfare that comes at Jesus while he's hanging on the cross. And that he's, the bulls of Bashan come to gore me. The dogs are sneering at me. The accusations, the fightings, the torment that is coming against him. Then God blots out the sun at 12 o'clock. And again, historically, they say it's probably in some form of an eclipse of the sun. And it goes dark over the whole land. And the people then start fading away. And then there is absolute silence for three hours. From 12 o'clock. We're coming up to 12 o'clock today. Remember at 12 o'clock this and try to relive it with Jesus. From 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock when he eventually dies, there is darkness over the whole land. And that is now Jesus 
drinking the wrath of God, taking in upon himself, drinking the cup of the wrath of God. For three hours, he suffers the wrath of human beings and the spiritual powers behind it. For three hours, he drinks the cup of God's judgment for all human sin. He suffers in our place for all human brokenness, all human sickness, all the suffering from cancer, all the broken creation that evil uses to kill people like the floods we've had where 364 people have encountered thus far have died in the last week in KZN. Satan uses broken creation to cause floods and tsunamis to kill and destroy. Jesus takes in all evil, all brokenness, in upon himself and absorbs it and pays the price on our behalf before God. And then, according to, to Matthew, he ends up saying, um, uh, he, he ends up saying, coming down to from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land and about the ninth hour Jesus cried out in a loud voice and here he quotes Psalm 22 verse 2 Eloi Eloi lama sabachthani that's the Greek but going back to the Aramaic my God my God why have you forsaken me which David wrote David was alive 1000 years BC 1,000 years before Christ, he wrote this prophetically by the Holy Spirit of his son that would be upon the throne, the Mashiach. And Jesus quotes his great, 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 great grandfather, David. Um, Why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, the father turned away from the son and Jesus experienced the ultimate rejection that all human beings deeply, instinctively fear. The deepest instinctive fear, in my opinion, theologically, and by my own existential experience in life, is the deepest fear all human beings have, is the fear of ultimate rejection by God. Hell is where God isn't. Hell is to live outside of God's presence. That is torment and hell. My God, my God, why have you forsaken? And he cried the cry of utter, total rejection so that we who are rejected might be accepted by the love and grace and forgiveness of God. And when some of those standing there heard this, they said he's calling for Elijah because of the tradition in the Hebrew scriptures that Elijah will come before the coming of Messiah and then they ran and they got a sponge and, and they filled it with vinegar. By the way, when they were about to nail his hands to the cross, they offered him vinegar or wine mixed with gall. That was a sedative which he refused. After tasting it, he realized it would, it would sedate the pain and he refused that. And they used to do it routinely before they nailed people to the cross. They gave them wine mixed with gall to help help them it would be the equivalent in our western world of take a stiff whiskey or three or four or twelve of them before we do we operate on you without anesthetic 
Here they do it again. They take a sponge and they fill it with vinegar, wine vinegar, and they offer it to Jesus. And they said, now let's leave him and let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And now listen to this. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, Matthew does not give what he cried out, but John does. And the loud, the loud voice that he cried out was what the Jesus who wrote that letter to death said, Tetelestai. John's gospel says that Jesus cried out at the end, it is finished. And you know that the Greek word titelestai is a military term. The Roman generals, when they fought the battles, used to stand on the high ground and they used to watch the battle ensuing on the open plain below and they would send in their legions against the enemy and when they saw their legions and all their maneuverings through, through signals of trumpets, etc., when they saw the enemy was now overcome, the general would start shouting tetelestai and the word would go out and go down and the Roman soldiers would begin to shout, it is finished, we've won, the victory's ours, and they would rout the enemy and kill them completely and try to destroy them. So this is a military term that at the end Jesus shouts, it is finished. I have won the victory. The battle is over. And it's beautiful according to John's gospel. When Jesus says, Tetelestai, it is finished, John says, he then bowed his head and gave up his spirit. In other words, John is saying now he can rest and enter into the Shabbat. Because now he's entrusting his spirit to God his Father, and God his Father can raise him from the dead or not raise him from the dead. God his Father can do whatever he wants to do, but he's done his part in full faith and hope that now he's in God's hands. And then Matthew says he cried out in a loud voice, Tetelestai, and he gave up his spirit. The last thing that Jesus said was, and there's a quote from Psalm, I think it's Psalm 31, into your hands, my God, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And then, literally, with his last bit of energy, he lifted himself up with the weight on, his, on the spike going through his heels into the cross, and then his hands breathed and leant back and breathed out and died and later perhaps in the darkness or when the darkness began to lift the soldiers came by just to check the three of them and they found that Jesus was already dead because the Passover was coming the sun would begin to set at five six o'clock and they had to get the bodies down for the Jewish Passover and they found that the other two were still alive so they broke their legs with the with the spear they just shattered the feet the, not the femur, what do you call this guy? Uh, that, that bone? <laughs> the tibia? And then, of course, with that, they would just conk in and die immediately because they couldn't breathe anymore. And they would asphyxiate. But with Jesus, they found that he, already, he had already died at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And so they didn't have to break his legs. And, they, and then, to finish off the story, According to Matthew, at that moment when Jesus cried out with a loud cry, which in all probability, harmonizing the Gospels, was tetelestai. And then he gave up his spirit, which in all probability, because Matthew doesn't give the words, was um, from the book of Luke, into your hands I commit my spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. 
Now you must know Josephus, who's a Jewish historian, who wrote after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, in about 80 AD, writes about the, the temple and the, the curtain that separated the holy place. So you had the outer court, you had the holy place where all the priests served, served and then you had this massively thick curtain in the temple into the Holy of Holies where only the high priest went once a year. You remember that? Do you know that that curtain that separated the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was and God's manifest, His Shkinah, His manifest glorious presence, and the, and the rest, that curtain was so thick, Josephus says it took 14 yoke of oxen to pull the curtain apart. That's how thickly it was woven. To tear that curtain would take 14 yoke of oxen either side to tear the curtain. In that moment, the curtain was torn from the top to the bottom. When Jesus cried, basically, it's, the th it, it's a... It's a physical reality if it's historically accurate, which I believe it is. But its theology is saying God is locked up behind the curtain and you're only allowed to see him once a year through your high priest if you've done all the correct sacrifices of blood so that you're not killed and you're unworthy. God got so excited when Jesus died that the time is out. And I must bring it to God. That God took the curtain and he taught from the top to the bottom. Shh! And said, Peekaboo. <laughs> it's me. I'm here. And God walked out from behind the curtain. And God's holy of holies, his most immediate holy shkinah, which is the glory of the full manifest presence of God, comes out of the temple and can now fill the earth because the blood of the Passover lamb has been shed. And God leads a new exodus out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light through his glorious... So when it says the earth shook and the rocks split, that is broken earth anticipating in great excitement its liberation because the, the, the curse on earth has been broken and paid for through the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. And the earth will be renewed. And the earth is anticipating its renewal by shaking itself up. And people come out of the graves. And after the resurrection of Jesus, Matthew carefully points out, they were, they were resurrected and were seen in the holy city and appeared to people after Jesus' resurrection, which is Sunday morning. And then, dear friends, the closing comment is probably four o'clock, five o'clock. Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy man who had become a secret believer of Jesus, and Nicodemus, who was part of the, the Jewish Sanhedrin, a, a Pharisee rabbi, a sage in Israel, also had become a secret believer of Jesus. They went to Pilate and they asked for permission if they could take down the body of Jesus from the cross because the sun was setting and it was the beginning of the Saturday, the Shabbat. And you know, you have the most beautiful tender story where they come and these two elderly men, literally gray-haired, gray-bearded men, sages in Israel, tenderly, carefully take down the body of Jesus and they wash it and they cleanse it. And you know, it says that Mary, Jesus' mother, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and John, were all there watching them while these two elderly men so tenderly, so compassionately honored the dignity of Jesus' earthly body 
and washed it clean from all the blood. And it says, if you read the text carefully, John brings us out. Joseph of Arimathea provided 30 kilograms of spikenard and myrrh of oils. And that is referred to in the book of Kings. That 30 kilograms of precious, expensive oil was only reserved for the burial of kings. And they embalmed the body of Jesus with linen cloth in 30 kilograms of the most expensive perfume known to the people of that time. Yeah, such utter extravagant. You think Mary on the Wednesday night before the Thursday night who washed Jesus' feet with spikenard, a pint of spikenard. And Judas considered that extravagant because the money was, the spikenard, the one pint was worth one year's wages. And, and Judas complained and said this money could have been, this spikenard could have been sold and given to the poor. If one pint was worth one year's wages, how much would 30 kilograms be worth? Millions and millions and millions of rands in our equivalence currency today. What? What? Extravagance. But they believed he was Israel's king. And he was worthy of a kingly birth. And so Jesus then at five o'clock probably was laid into the tomb. Joseph of Arimathea's tomb that he had freshly carved out of the sandstone rock just below the place of the skull, not far from where he was crucified. And they washed his body and bombed it, and they went and they laid it in the tomb and rolled a big stone with all the Roman soldiers witnessing under the orders of Pontius Pilatus so that his body wouldn't be stolen. And there, Jesus, from 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock tonight, Friday night, lay in silence in his rest, Shabbat, and on Sunday morning, the resurrection. Jill, will you come up? So, if you could take the mic. So we've done, I've done a little exercise in trying to just tell you the story. And re-portray it so that you can live in that memory. And when you go home, continue to meditate and live in the memory of what I've shared with you. So we will now break bread and um, what we'll do is I'll introduce the bread, pray over it. Joel will introduce the wine and pray over it. Um, and, and then um, we'll encourage you then to just come up prayerfully, quietly, take bread and wine and go break bread with people, with friends, share with one another, minister to one another outside, around their stations, outside there. But so, as I said, the night the night in which Jesus was betrayed, at that Passover meal, the Last Supper, it says Jesus took the bread, which was the unleavened bread, the matzos. And when he had said the blessing, he broke it and said, take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. I am breaking my body so that you and your brokenness may become whole. Jesus, we thank you for your death on the cross and your broken body that you freely and willingly gave us your body broken that for our brokenness we may be made whole and we receive your body in that way in Jesus name and then Jesus he took the cup 
He held the cup. He was not ashamed of the cup. It's a cup we acknowledge of suffering, but of joy. And then he not only held it, he lifted it. It's like saying, we thank you. We thank you, Jesus, for shedding your blood that heals so many diseases and disorders. And we look at it, and we acknowledge that, Lord. And then we drink of it. We drink our salvation, the one body and the one spirit. Thank you, Lord, for your blood that was shed for us. Amen. Amen. As and when you're ready, there's stations outside there. There's here. There's upstairs as well. You go, take some bread, grape juice, break bread with one another, share the body and the blood, pray for each other, bless each other, and God bless you, and have a good day as you continue to journey with Jesus through to Sunday morning, resurrection.